Our Father, how grateful we are for all of your good gifts to us. You are our Savior, you are our provider, you are our sustainer, you keep us going. Driving over here, I, I was thinking of three different men I've talked to in recent days who uh, have businesses that are under immense threat and um, really, really facing some peril. And inevitably, in a room with this many guys, there are other men facing similar situations, may not be business owners, it just may be their personal finances. Um, the threat of a job loss or have already been laid off in the process of looking for work. It's in these times that we are mindful of how dependent upon you we really are. Uh, life is busy and when uh, work and business is going along fairly well, we just, we're just uh, going about our business. And we're working and we're working hard and we assume things will always be that way. But sometimes uh, there is a reversal. Sometimes there is a hostile takeover. Sometimes there is a layoff. Sometimes uh, funding dries up. Uh, it's like anything else in life. We, uh, we often assume it'll be there, and then when it's not, it shakes us to the core. Uh, you, you said uh, in Deuteronomy 8.18 that you are the God who gives us the power to make wealth. And that's certainly true. You, you are the one who provides for us through our work through our employment, through, uh, through our investments, through our whatever means it is, you're the one who's behind it. 1 Corinthians uh, 4.7 always applies, and what do you have that you did not receive? Everything we have has come from you. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. Health is a gift. Finances are a gift. Healthy family relationships are a gift that must be maintained and paid attention to, as is every area of life. So we come here as a group of men uh, coming into this room tonight out of different situations, out of different contexts, all facing big-time issues in our lives, whether it be on the business side, the health side, a relationship issue. Whatever it is, we come to you. We are absolutely dependent upon you. You have richly blessed us. You've been so good to us. Oftentimes these things 
which you are sovereign over, you will use to teach us lessons that are, that are painful and that are hard and that keep us up at night. But I'd pray for every man in regard to what he is facing that you would keep us all teachable. You wouldn't let our hearts get stubborn. You wouldn't let our hearts get proud. But that we would be quick to respond to the leading of your word and your spirit. We are needy men. We ask for your help. The psalmist said, I am in distress. Answer me quickly. And there are some who are facing imminent, imminent threats. And they're in distress. Thank you that your eye is upon them. Give them what they need at the exact right time. We'll trust you with that. The psalmist said, my times are in your hand. And he also said, the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. We entrust our souls to you, the living God, to do what's right. And we do that with great confidence in your love and care because of Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. We're back to our study on what we're calling landmines. We have uh, based this on Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Uh, we're in a battle. We're in spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6 makes that very, very clear. We are living in the midst of a culture that is in great rebellion to the living God and to his word. And this culture and this um, worldview has great influence and it has great power and it is, it is, it is a strong current it has great momentum. It has great power. Uh, most people just go along with it because if you don't, there are repercussions. Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. And as Christian men, we're following him, and therefore we want to be careful how we walk not as unwise, not according to the world, not according to the world system, to the secular perspective, the secular government, the secular educational system. We want to make sure that we are walking according to his truth and his wisdom. That's how we walk carefully. That's how we avoid the landmines. Tonight, I want us to look at another landmine that is so powerful and so deceptive that it is sucked in 
the majority of Bible-believing Christians. And rarely is this discussed, and rarely is it addressed, because because we have been indoctrinated with what the world teaches. And what I'm referring to tonight is the landmine of erasing God's blueprint for the family. And you may be thinking, no, I'm, I'm all in on God's blueprint for the family. Good, I hope you are. But there's some aspects that God has said that are being erased and are being ignored by well-meaning Christian people. Uh, So when I say God's blueprint for the family, we're going to go to Genesis. And we were there last week, and we're going to go to a couple of verses that we were in last week. We're going to go to Genesis 127. Last week we saw that... uh, We're living in a culture that is removing the ancient boundaries of gender, and there are all kinds of implications as a result of that. I I was told of a situation where afterwards talking to an individual told me of a situation in, in an elementary school where A five-year-old was about to undergo sexual hormonal therapy. And the other children in the kindergarten class had been, uh, apparently a specialist had brought in to prepare them and to let them know that this is fine and normal and it's not fine. We're living in evil days. And we're the husbands, and we're the fathers, and we're the grandfathers, and we gotta have our antenna up. It's, it's not Ozzy and Harriet anymore. And you young guys, Google Ozzy and Harriet. <laughs> That's where our culture used to be, but not anymore. When we talk about um, God's blueprint for the family, we, all, we go back to Genesis. You go back to the beginnings. In Genesis 1:27, and we were here last week, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Next verse, God blessed them. And God said to them, to the man and the woman. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, once again, we we talked last week about, and I don't want to get off on this too much, but we talked about creation ordinances, principles that God laid out for the human race in the book of Genesis. These creation ordinances are for all people in all cultures at all times. One of the creation ordinances is to have children. That's in 28 of Genesis 1. I mentioned last week, and I'll say it again, the world in which we live is an outright rebellion to the creation ordinances of God. 
So the emphasis in our culture is don't have children. That's the emphasis. The, the, the population of the world cannot sustain uh, a larger population of children, so therefore don't have children. Yet, the Bible says that children are a blessing from the Lord. And we've all seen, oh, but see, there's famine and there's all these terrible things that we ha- see in third world countries. Well, I, I remember years ago reading an analysis of why there was, yeah, there was famine, but there was also massive relief efforts, massive amounts of food sent by the United States and by other countries, massive amounts of food sent. And this was a very, very in-depth analysis. And basically what it said was, if it wasn't for the graft and the corruption of the leadership, that crisis would have been averted. But you see, what we hear is, oh no, don't have any more children. So the world says abort the children. Uh, Don't have children. God says be fruitful and multiply. But you see, if he's the creator and he's the sustainer, and isn't it true we're living in days of unbelievable technology, and as I read certain things, I see the yields of crops. We've never had yields like this before. You know, when all else fails, read the directions. He's the author of life. He's the bread of life. My point is, the world is in opposition to what God says. Male and female, he created them. That's gender. God blessed them and said to them, to the man and woman, to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. By the way, because we're made in the image of God, the man's job was to subdue the earth. The man's job was to work. The man's job was uh, to, as you'll see when you get into Genesis 2, was to name the animals. All the animals were brought to him in Genesis 2. Naming indicates authority. You can only name something if you have authority over something. Adam named all the animals. Why? Because, you see, men and women are made in the image of God. Animals are not made in the image of God. We take care of our animals. We care for our animals. But animals are not equal with people. We're living in a day and age where we are being told that animals are equal with people. And they're not. Now, you you got in the Old Testament, you got stipulations on how to take care of animals. And if you don't, you're going to pay. Because God is concerned about the well-being of animals. But we don't worship animals. Animals are not equal to us. If you can do testing on a laboratory animal to save the life of a child, then do it. But we have people that are blowing up research laboratories because of animal testing. This is rebellion to the living God. Let's talk about family. Let's get back to family. Let's get back on course. You say, Steve, I never got off course. You're the one who got off course. That's usually how it works in here. But you get the point. 
all these creation ordinances of God, the world's in rebellion to. Uh, the man was to work and to till the garden. Yeah. But in our culture, we pay young men not to work. Paul said, if you don't work, you don't eat. We got all kinds of young guys who are on a system that encourages them to be irresponsible. And somebody's paying for that, and that's not right. Anyway, I'm just saying, when you start reading these creation ordinances, as you look around, you see that our world is, is in absolute rebellion to him. So we, who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, want to be careful how we walk that we don't drink the Kool-Aid, and that we're walking according to his plan and what he says because it's for our good. Let's talk about family. So in, in Genesis 127 and 128, we have some principles. This is God's blueprint for the family. I, I'm going to go ahead tonight, and I'm going to give you family 101 from a Bible perspective. All right? Because my, my premise is we've got to watch out for the landmine of erasing God's blueprint for the family. So I'm going to break this down, and we're going to look at some more verses here in a minute. But let me go ahead and give this to you. Here's family 101 out of Scripture. All right? And see if this isn't logical and see if this doesn't make sense. Every family needs two things. Every family. Number one. Every family needs provision. They need food. They need clothing. They need shelter. I mean, we're talking real basic fundamentals here. So every family needs provision. Does it not? Yes, it does. Secondly, every family needs care. Care. All right? So far, so good. Everybody's on the same page. Now, here's where I see even Christian people getting upset. Let me make two statements. In God's blueprint, the man is to be the primary provider. And the woman, the wife, is to be the primary caregiver. Now, let's stop and think this through. So every family needs two things. They need provision, and they need care. God has called the man to be the primary provider, as I read Scripture. God has called the woman to be the primary caregiver. And you see it. See, this is what's called gender roles. And you see it in how he created them. He created them, they're both made the image of God, they're equal, but he created them differently. Both men and women have breasts. There's such profound truth tonight. <laughs> but have you noticed there's a difference? I remember years ago, Mary showed me an article she had read about a couple in Northern California, they were in the back country up around the old, uh, up around uh, Sonora, where, you know, a lot of the gold camps were up in that area in 1849 when they had the gold rush and all that. And 
it's pretty country. It's, it's fun to drive up there in the back roads. And they were, this young couple were, were there, and they had their little infant, and they were just taking, you know, taking some time off and driving. And, and a freak late spring blizzard hit. Now, you'll get snow in the Sierras, but th this was lower elevations, and this thing swept out of nowhere. And I mean, it was a blizzard, and they got trapped in their car. And they were in there overnight, and they had an infant, and they were snowed in, and they're thinking someone's going to come along, and nobody was coming along. And so finally, it, it got to be a matter of survival. So what the woman did was she made sure that the guy was as safe and secure as possible with that infant, and then she got up, and she walked seven miles through the snow to get help. That's not what happened. What happened was the guy made sure she was as comfortable and safe as possible with the child, and he walked seven, eight, ten miles, whatever it was, to get help. Why? They're both made in the image of God, but God made them different. He could not nurture that child. He could not care for that child in that situation. He needed to provide. He needed to go get some, and in that case, provision was going and getting help. Let's get some assistance. We got a crisis on our hands. And Mary, as we were talking, she said, interesting, isn't it, in our modern culture, where people laugh at gender roles? Just laugh at them. They say there are no roles. Everything's equal. You do whatever you want. Everybody's, oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. In a Isn't it amazing in a crisis how we revert to our God-given roles? Yeah, because he could not breastfeed that baby, but she could. And when crisis breaks out, when all else fails, read the directions. So I made two statements, and, I, and I'll say this to you. Years and years ago, when I was growing up, nobody would have thought twice about these statements. The man is to be the primary provider. Now, notice the word primary. The man is to be the primary provider. Uh, the woman is to be the primary caregiver. It, it doesn't mean that men don't care. The men do care. They're to nurture, they're to love their children, they're to discipline their children. There's to be a healthy and safe uh, atmosphere in your home with your kids. Uh, they're loved. You get this. Next week, we're going to talk about some other aspects, including uh, homosexuality. One of the things that develops and is a pattern uh, in, in homosexual men, men who are in homosexual relationships is uh, the distance from their fathers their feelings toward fathers, there was distance, there was sometimes abuse, there was, but there was a, um, almost a repulsion at times. Because there wasn't, their, their emotional tanks as little boys were not filled by their dads. Uh, maybe their dad was the tough drill sergeant kind of guy, and, but no, not an awareness that boys have an emotional tank just as little girls have an emotional tank. As a father, it's my job, it's your job to fill those little emotional tanks. It's my job to fill my wife's emotional tank. That's our job, you see. But perhaps someone didn't do that for us, and that's tough for us to learn. But it can be learned, you see. It's just part of the growth process. Someone's got to break the family chain. 
that's been going on for generations, and through the power of Christ, it can be broken and turned around. We'll get into that next week. So men are to be primary providers. That doesn't mean that they're not involved in care. Women are primary, are biblically are to be the primary caregivers. Now, does that mean a wife can't help out with provision? I, I, we're not saying that. We're just laying out principles. Now, what's interesting is that when I was growing up, th- this is how the world, this is, th- and before I was growing up, this is how the world functioned for thousands of years. Not even on the table, not under discussion. But some things have changed. Big time, things have changed. That's why we're looking at this tonight. Part of the interesting thing, as you know, in Genesis, so God created Adam, gave him responsibilities, and in Genesis, look at Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. So the man was to work. Work has always been part of God's plan. But what happened, then he, he, the man slept. He had looked at all the creation. He didn't see anything that corresponded to him, nothing. And... You know, he just didn't. And then in 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. And that's true. Men aren't to live in isolation. Even if you're not married, you're not to be isolated from other people. It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. And some people get upset. Oh, oh, she's just a helper. Well, that term is used in Scripture for God. That's not a demeaning term. He is a very present help in times of trouble. My gosh, that's not a demeaning term to be a helper. That's a wonderful term, you see. Yeah, he needed a helper because he'd been given a task. He'd been given a vision. He'd been given a responsibility. So, you know the story. As he asleep falls upon him, God takes a rib, forms this woman. He wakes up. And there she is, right in front of him, naked. And he said, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, which is not what I'd say. I'd say, thank you, Jesus. But that's kind of what he was saying, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Hey, she, she, she's for me. Wow. This is great. I mean, he took a look at her and, whoa, a man. And that's how you get it. Whoa, man, uh, a woman. Sorry. That's not original of me. God invented this stuff. He invented it. And it was good. But then what happened, the serpent came because, you see, God had said in 2, 16 and 17, the Lord commanded the man, saying, From the, any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you shall eat from it you shall surely die. And then you get to Genesis 3, and everything changes because the serpent comes and tempts the woman. And 
She says, but God has said we should not do this. And the enemy says, uh, and she said, you know, he will die. And he said, you will not die. Satan always cast aspersions on God's word. Oh, God said, oh, we'll die. We won't die. He's been doing it from day one. So she eats. Adam, you know, he comes along. Instead of stepping in and giving leadership, he goes along. And now they're in sin, and now they realize, and sin has come into the world, and everything is broken. Everything is broken. There is a curse put on the serpent. There's a curse put on the woman, and there's a curse put on the man. Uh, It's interesting how God curses them because he curses them in their areas of primary responsibility. You guys tracking with me? All right, so look at Genesis 3. And note, if you would, verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Your, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That, that last part, your desire shall be. Probably the idea is because sin's in the world now. In, now that sin's in the world and sin is within us, you see the man is to be the head, Ephesians 5. The husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. He's to love his wife as Christ loves the church. But when you have two people in a relationship who are both sinners, the tendency for the man is to dominate and to become a tyrant. But for women, what they're going to struggle with is to rule over him and to usurp his position. And this is an ongoing thing that goes on throughout history, you see. And that's why through Christ and the power of his word and the Holy Spirit, we learn to grow and develop harmony in relationships instead of being at each other's throats. But nevertheless, where she was cursed, notice again, if you would, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in your career. He didn't say that. He said, I'll multiply your pain in childbirth. Now, let's go to 17. Because you see, her primary, she's the primary caregiver. In 17, then to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree with about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. He was going to till the garden. He was responsible. But he didn't have to deal with thorns and thistles by the sweat of his brow until sin came into the world. And now... In August, when you're out working in a field and it's hot and it's humid and there's thorns and there's thistles and there's weeds and all of that, that's tough. And it wasn't designed to be that way from the beginning. He was cursed in the area of his primary responsibility, which is provision. She was cursed in the area of caregiving. Go over to 1 Timothy 5.8. New Testament basically says exactly the same thing. In 1 Timothy 5, 8, we read this. But if anyone does not provide, there's provision, okay? It's talking about family relationships here. But if anyone does not provide, watch this, for his own, 
and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's talking about a Christian man who doesn't make provision for his family, sits on his duff all day or whatever he does. Instead of working, hey, listen, if you can work, you're supposed to work. There are times in life when, when things happen and someone gets hurt or disabled or has a setback or we have an affliction or we get an illness or we get older and we're not able to work like we used to work and all of that and we got to make those adjustments and all of that. that. That's all factored in here. That's just, that makes sense. This is talking about a man who is able to work but doesn't work because his job is to provide in the family. Okay? Look, if you would, uh, at look at First uh, Timothy five fourteen. Again, talking about different issues and families of members in the church. Beginning with eleven, he talks about younger widows; their husbands have died. And then in 14, he, he's talking about these younger widows. He says, therefore, I want younger widows to get married, to bear children, to keep house, and to give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. The word there, keep house, it's just not that she tidies up and spends all day making sure that, you know, you know. it's not that. This term in the Greek, when you look at it, it's... it's uh, she manages the affairs of the home. She, uh, she, is, she stewards the affairs of the home. You know, a, a family is, is a small civilization. A family is like, a, it's a small enterprise. There's all kinds of action going on in a family to care for a family. I mean, you, you've got, and I mean, we got all this modern technology stuff. But man, historically, what women had to do it was astonishing, the work they had to do. It was absolutely astonishing. A good explanation of this is in Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 woman. There, there is quite a description of this woman who is the virtuous woman, who is the godly woman, uh, how she cares for her family. And I mean... She is a multitasker. She is sharp. She is smart. She is capable. And that thing runs like a well-oiled machine relationally. She's on this. She's on that. What a gift. What a gift. You see? That's not depreciated. And I'm not going to take the time to read Proverbs 31. Well, I'll read a little bit. How's the time doing? Real quick. Because you see, she's caring for the family. And by the way, she works. She'll look at a field and she'll buy it. You know, she's got a little part-time gig going there. But what's interesting is when you look at this woman in Proverbs 31, the work that she does, the commerce that she does is out of the context of the home and the home is not neglected. Everyone in the home is taken care of. Everyone in the home is provided for. She gets up early and she doesn't go to bed till late. This woman is gold. She's something else. 
An excellent wife, verse 10 of 31, who can find her worth is far above jewels. And if you have a wife like this, you're saying amen. And if you're a young guy and you're looking for a wife, yeah. Yeah, I'd like a wife like that. Women like that are looking for young men who are mature and seeking after Christ and are teachable. You don't marry a young woman like that to slide through life. She's going to be looking for some gumption. She's going to be looking for some substance if you're a young guy. So if you're a young guy, get after it. Uh, well, what, what do I do? Be responsible and take initiative. Yeah, that's what you do. Just thought I'd throw that in, no charge. Okay? Uh, 11, the heart of her husband, trust in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good, not evil, all the days of her life. And then you, look, you read the rest of it, all that she does. She is a gifted, competent woman, and in our culture, they would mock her and say, well, you're a stay-at-home mom. This is where our culture has gotten completely off. Completely off. Uh, I remember years ago when we were raising our kids, uh, Mary would tell me from time, I met Mary in seminary, and she hadn't planned to go into seminary, but I'm glad she did. There was a degree, uh, she'd been with Campus Crusade for Christ, and had done women's ministry for them for several years, and then she was a soprano soloist back then and traveled a lot with Crusade. And uh, where I went to seminary, they started a master's in, in church music and theology. And one of the men she used to work for in Crusade was heading that up, and she found out. So she came out to the seminary, and there were only about seven or eight, nine, ten women at the seminary. And I figured they were all there because they were looking for husbands. <laughs> I mean, I did. What are these women doing? Well, I mean, you know. They, they, and Mary, wanted, she knew music, she wanted to further her music, and she loved theology. Uh, and we met, we got married, and we moved, and I took a job as a youth pastor to finish, and did that while I finished my degree. And she still had six, seven, eight classes left, which later on she was able to finish. But we waited because we had kids, and had to raise the kids. Uh, and then down the road, she was able to finish and get her degree. But she would, you know, tell me from time to time, she would go out with the kids and, you know, they're in a store somewhere and, you know, she'll hand them a, a card at the checkout and, uh, you know, and so, you know, how you, back then you'd sign it and they'd say, uh, and what's your work number? And she, and she would say, I don't work. And sometimes she'd get kind of a glare. Or sometimes someone would say, well, what do you do all day? <laughs> kind of amazing responses from women. And this, you know, and one time we were talking, it happened again, it happened every once in a while, no big deal, but it was, I mean, she's smart. She could be running that whole enterprise. And what do you do all day? And I said, Mary, the next time somebody asks you that, just say this. Well, I'm raising uh, leaders for the next generation. What do you do? Sell potato chips? 
What do you do, sell, sell ruffles? <laughs> Nothing wrong with selling potato chips. But don't belittle raising the next generation for Christ. It's the most important work in the world. Yes, it is, and our culture mocks it. Let's talk about the careless American family. Careless. Every family needs two things. Provision and what? Care. A lot of American families and a lot of American Christian families are careless. Because they're strong in provision and they're weak on care. Now, historically, when I teach this, I get people upset. And uh, I get interesting letters. And I get people, um, I just get real interesting responses because this goes real deep with people. All I'm doing is laying out principles. Everybody in this room has got to apply it and has to seek the Lord for wisdom. But we need to discuss it, and we need to look at it. I, I found it interesting. I came across an article called, Millennial Men Prefer to be Family Breadwinners and Have Stay-at-Home Wives. Yeah, dead serious. Um, this is written by Susan Goldberg. and. I'm just going to read this to you. A lot of times we talk about millennials and we make fun about millennials. I saw a video the other day on, uh, it was based on, you've seen these, uh, <laughs> you've seen these uh, good commercials for children in need in different countries who are not being fed and, and for $29 a month you can support this child. Well, this was about um, a, a, group, a group that's being ignored and has tremendous needs, and for just $2,900 a month, you can support a Christian millennial. <laughs> kind of funny. Because a lot of, they get, you know, they'll get a, a rap that they don't work and they don't take initiative and they're coddled and all that, and a lot of them are. But not all of them, thank the Lord. It's not everybody. So, uh, Goldberg writes, a New York Times op-ed on millennial men details some surprising statistics. This is in the New York Times. Regarding the way that men ages 18 to 34 view the role they play or should play in family life, nearly 50% 50, 50 of the men ages 18 to 25 believe that it's better for everyone involved if the man is the achiever outside the home and the woman takes care of the home and family. That's astonishing, because that's the absolute opposite of the current in our culture that's been around for 40 years. A similar survey of high school seniors in 2014 revealed that 58% agreed that the best family was one where the man was the main income earner and the woman took care of the home. Why, you may ask, the writer says. The strongest theory suggests that the generation that grew up with two working parents is well aware of the stresses that dynamic brings upon family life. 
In other words, this is the generation that was raised not only with the father in provision, but with the mother in provision. Think about it. Every family needs two things, provision and care. When the husband is in provision and the wife is in provision, who's caring for the kids? And so here's a young generation coming up, and they sound like Ozzy and Harriet. They sound like old school. They sound like Genesis because they were raised this way. And they've experienced the defects, and then it goes on in the article how the Times attempts to twist this. What a shock. <laughs> and, and just absolutely twist the facts. Without going into that, I'll just do the summary. In other words, the Times wants to combat a generational craving for traditional home and family values. I would call it biblical values. They, they try to combat it, those things, with the lure of better sex and potential for increased financial security. Obviously, they aren't aware of other recent statistics revealing that millennials are increasingly prioritizing family over career, often to the point of choosing the stay-at-home parent dynamic. Found that interesting. So let me give you three principles about the careless American family. And, and see, this is all Bible stuff. God invented the family and he knows how to make it work. So when all else fails, read the directions. Now we have immense challenges in our day. My kids who are raising kids have challenges that I didn't have, that Mary and I didn't have, because there have been laws put in place, there have been uh, shifts in taxation policy. It used to be that our government saw the wisdom of having strong family units, and in the taxation code, they would give breaks and they would give help to enable families, quite frankly, to follow God's prescription for families and help them financially and not put a great tax burden on them. Mary and I raised our kids under that system. My kids don't have that system. My kids and your kids are paying for the guys that I see at 7-Eleven at 11.30 in the morning who are trying to wake up with their first cup of coffee and eating their M&Ms and smoking their cigarettes, who are able-bodied and should be out there working, but somebody's got to support those guys. You say that's political. It's true. Man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Let's try that for a week. <laughs> I think I'm going to run for office. That just struck me. I, and, and I'll, anyway, foolish thought, just trying to have a little humor there. Let me give you three principles on the careless American family. Number one, Christians have bought into the lie of feminism. 
Christians have bought into the lie of feminism. Uh, there's a book called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood that's been edited by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. It's got excellent essays, phenomenal stuff. There is an essay here um, by David uh, Ayers, a uh, Christian scholar and uh, thinker. It's called The In Inevitability of Failure. And the subtitle is The Assumptions and Implementations of Modern Feminism. I'll just jump in. He says, evangelicals are, just as the general public is, increasingly accepting feminist portrayals of reality and prescriptions for change, even when these contradict not only Scripture, but also their own personal experiences and aspirations. That's true. He's got some strong stuff. To ignore competing arguments in an area of such broad ramifications as male-female differentiation is more dangerous than the Soviet refusal to debate Marx. And what he starts out with is giving his personal illustration of working in, in, a, in a Christian parachurch and publishing, and an article was submitted by a pastor's wife on the role of women, and a young woman, Christian, quote-unquote, editor comes in and says, this is old school, this is foolishness, this is, this is, we can't print this. And then he started going through biblical principles with her, and she refused to engage him. And she got upset and uh, refused to print the article. Didn't even want to dialogue, didn't even want to have discourse because you see, this, uh, this, is not to be, this feminism is not to be trifled with and it's not to be questioned. As in communism, we have seen repeatedly that if wrong assumptions and the theories flowing from them are not challenged, they will be accepted and applied, but they will fail. Naturally, proponents attempt to hide or discount these failures and the human misery associated with them. Still, denial can't last forever, and reality will have its day. But at what cost? Uh, uh, this guy's not messing around. As we shall see, feminist ideology has profound implications for the family, business, the economy, politics, the military, ma marriage. By the way, the military, they're getting ready to draft young girls. Look it up. Look it up in World Magazine. There is a strong movement to institute the draft for young women. You ought to be aware of this because we're fathers and we're grandfathers, and we ought to make some noise about this. I'm going to read that sentence again. As we shall see, feminist ideology has profound implications for the family business, the economy, politics, the military, marriage, sexual preference, and identity, child-rearing, and education, and it does. The mechanisms by which society has prepared, placed, and sustained each generation are being called into question. Absolutely. 
The requested changes are not just reform, they are truly revolutionary and are presented by feminists as such. Such alterations are far-reaching. Common sense demands then that they be seriously debated, but the truth is enormous de facto censorship Censorship is directed towards any work questioning the basic tenets and consequences of feminism, and a decidedly slanted picture of this movement is being presented in the media. You know that. He then goes on over and he talks about the assumptions of feminism. He talks about being at a, a, a party with Christian friends, conservative friends, and um, they were having a discussion about feminism. These people were pretty conservative. They actually homeschooled and, you know, okay. Uh, Neither he nor his wife had much use for feminism, yet when I explained my deep concern to him that Christian feminism would produce the same kind of fruit as the secular variety, he expressed some incredulity. How do we say that word? Incredulity. Thank you. Incredulity. Thank you. I went to college. I can't say that word. It expressed some unbelief is what I would say. And the gentleman said, but wouldn't the Christian feminists believe all the same things? They wouldn't believe the same things as secular feminists, would they? But you see, in actuality, they do. He goes on and says, um, in regard to uh, sex roles, He says um, that feminism in its contemporary form is an imperial doctrine, empirical doctrine leading to recommendations for social action. The doctrine has three main tenets. One, physical differences apart, men and women are the same. Infant boys and girls are born with virtually the same capacities and if raised identically would develop identically. That is absolutely not true in any way, shape, or form. The research goes against that, but they don't want facts. Secondly, men occupy positions of dominance because the myth that men are more aggressive has been per perpetuated by the practice of raising boys to be mastery-oriented and girls to be person-oriented. If this stereotyping ceased, leadership would be equally divided between the sexes. It's not a myth. God has called men to one role, and he's called wives to another role, and they complement, and they fit, and it's wonderful. Three, true human individuality and fulfillment will come only when people view themselves as human repositories of talent and traits without regard to sex. Given the evidence, some feminists do admit to some innate biological difference, but they minimize its impact and relevance. Most, however, ignore it entirely or deny its existence. Watch this. This is the fatal mistake, since if there are important biologically-based differences between the sexes, the rest of contemporary feminism falls apart. What is obviously unattainable cannot be the object of rational human effort. In this sense, it is in this sense, if the factual assumption of feminism is wrong, the rest is irrational. Feminism against, is against everything that God has set up. Everything. And you hear about Christian feminists, and I read their stuff. It's shocking. 
there, there is a hotbed of Christian feminism. There is a church. I've been there. Uh, it, it's amazing. Uh, their elder board, uh, half of the elders are women. Go on the website and you'll see the families. Is the man in the head of the family? Uh-uh. No, they don't teach that in that church. One of the fastest growing evangelical churches in the world. I'm editing. Um, someone who used to attend that church said, it's amazing to me how many women in that church refused to take their husband's last name. Yeah. Now, you're not supposed to say this stuff because we don't want to disrupt the body. And I was speaking at a conference one time, and I actually named the church. And I got heat from the individuals putting on the conference because they want unity in the body. Yeah, but they're teaching something that is anti-Scripture. This is contrary to the Word of God. But so you want unity, you just want unity. I'm all for unity, but unity, you don't throw out truth to get unity. So Christians have bought into the lie of feminism, and I could say more, but I won't. I will say this. I'll give you an example. When we first moved to Texas, uh, we moved to Coppell, and uh, a young couple moved next door to us, and uh, they were in their late 20s. They both were CPAs. They both worked at the same firm downtown, big CPA. They were doing well. They were making good money. You could tell. They were driving new cars. They had a new house. Uh, all, you know, always seeing trucks, furniture trucks coming in. I mean, they were, they were living the good life. Two incomes, they were doing well. And uh, they went to First Baptist, whatever, somewhere. You know, they're Christians. And uh, we didn't know them well. We knew them a little bit. And then one day, Mary saw her out there, and they were talking, and she told Mary she was going to have a baby. And Mary told me, and I thought, oh, this will be interesting. <laughs> and so the months went by, and uh, I don't know, a number of months later, a number of months, we're out there in the backyard, and they're out there, and then we start talking, and, oh, come on in. Well, you know, so we walk into their house, and it's immaculate. It's beautiful. It's incredible. I mean, it was, it was nice. I mean, they're young, and they got everything. They got the new cars. They got the furniture, everything. And then we walked into the baby's room. That baby's room was unbelievable. I mean, it was incredible. Everything color-coordinated, synchronized, the drapes matched the Kleenex holder. The, I mean, it was just, I mean, you didn't want to walk in. You didn't want to breathe. You didn't want to, it was glorious. And they're talking because she's about due and all of this, and you know. And out of nowhere, as all this, all this preparation, all this thought, all this expense, we were walking out, and she turned to Mary and said, Mary, oh, by the way, do you know anyone who can care for my child? I didn't say anything. I've never forgotten that. You've thought about everything. You're having a baby. You've thought about everything. 
You thought about the drapes, you thought about the sheets, you thought about the thread count, if it's Egyptian, if it's Iranian, if it's from Bolivia, you thought about everything. You got this, you got that, you got it all. And it's just popping into your head. Do you know anyone who can care for my child? You've done everything except the most important thing. Because we bought into the lie of feminism, we have, uh, we've developed an industry called daycare. And I would encourage you sometime to do the research on daycare. Just do the research. Now, I want to say this. If there's a single mom and she's by herself and she's trying to feed a family and take care of kids and she's got to put her kids in daycare, the church needs to help her. And Christian people need to help her. She's doing the work of two people. And there, there are some Christian folks that have daycare centers because there are people that have legitimate need. But, and there is, I know single dads that are raising families by themselves and they need help. I'm not disparaging people with genuine needs. I'm not disparaging. But what I am saying is that there's an epidemic outside the church and inside the church that is destroying families. There was an influenza epidemic in 1918. I had two uncles, great uncles, die in that epidemic. Uh, We're not worried about influenza outbreak, but we ought to be worried about an affluenza outbreak. Affluenza is a slow-moving spiritual virus that gets into the hearts and minds of Christian people and distorts their thinking and causes them to make unwise decisions. And we're living in days of affluenza. When you take both husband and wife and put them in provision, the question is, who's caring for the kids? Second point on the careless American family. In order to find a balance of provision and care, the parents must sacrifice. I'll say it again. In order to find a balance of provision and care, the parents must sacrifice. G.K. Chesterton wrote this about 130 years ago, speaking about his culture and where his culture was. And I'm really hoping that I marked that page and that it shows up and it just did. Here's what Chesterton said about life in England in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He said this, as he looked around at this whole issue, Chesterton asked, can anyone tell me two things more vital to the race than these? One, what man shall marry what woman? And two, what shall be the first things taught to their first child? He goes on to comment that the natural operation surrounded a young woman, a young mother with very young children who required to be taught not so much anything, but everything. Babies need not to be taught a trade, but to be introduced to the world. To put the matter shortly, a woman is generally shut up in a house with a human being at the time when he asks all the questions that there are and some that there aren't. 
Our race has thought it worthwhile to cast this burden on women in order to keep common sense in the world. That's a brilliant statement. But when people begin to talk about this domestic duty is not merely difficult, but trivial and dreary, I simply give up the question, for I cannot with the utmost energy of imagination conceive what they mean. If drudgery only means dreadfully hard work, I admit the woman drudges in the home as a man might drudge at his work. But if it means that the hard work is more heavy because it is trifling or colorless or of small import to the soul, I say give it up. How can it be an important career to tell other people's children about mathematics and a small career to tell one's own children about the universe? A woman's function is laborious, not because it's minute, but because it's gigantic. I will pity Mrs. Jones for the hugeness of her task. I will never pity her for its smallness. Three, husbands and wives together are to fulfill the Great Commission. You say, what does that have to do with anything? The heart of the Great Commission is make disciples. Matthew 28. It's important. It's the Great Commission. I mean, this is big-time stuff that Jesus gave. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So therefore, wait a minute. Therefore, what he says in Genesis about the family has authority over Christian people. Right? Okay. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Did you catch that? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Discipleship starts in the Christian home. Your home and my home are small churches. Said it before in here. You're the husband, you're the father, you're the pastor. You're the family pastor. And when a husband and wife are following the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to be in sync with his word and with his principles and with his blueprint. Now, listen, there's going to be stuff to work out, and this stuff isn't easy. I've already said, when we were raising our kids, we, we really worked hard so that Mary could be at home. Uh, you're you're going to make, if you do this, you're going to make sacrifices. And I'm watching my kids and their friends who are raising kids, and their sacrifices are much greater than the ones we had to make. When I was pastor in California, a small church, my day off was Monday. Well, we had three little kids. We, we had a choir director, and for some reason, he had to resign. So this, our choir director had to resign, and we're looking around. Well, Mary, her background's in music, and it came up, hey, could Mary take the choir? And yeah, and there'd be some income. Well, that would help us. So on Mondays, I'd go home, and I'd care for the kids, and Mary would go up, and she would work on the choir and get that all ready for Sunday and all of that, and we'd get a little extra income. And she got home, and I was having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> and because, I mean, I just, it was all I could do to keep it together with these three little kids, you see? But you sacrifice, and you do what you have to do. 
You know what affluenza does? Affluenza takes well-meaning Christian people who get used to two incomes and a certain style of living. And what happens, it distorts their thinking, and they're not willing to make sacrifices for their kids. Historically, parents make sacrifices for their kids. When affluenza grips you, you don't make sacrifices for your kids. You sacrifice your kids. Now, well, how do you work this out? I don't know. Everyone has a different situation. But families should help families as best as you can. But every family's different. But this has got to be addressed. And you go before the Lord and you say, Lord, we need your help. Sometimes it means that you downsize. You live in a smaller house. It might mean you don't drive new cars, you drive used cars. It might mean that you don't take nights vacations to Maui. Your vacation is going to Dairy Queen. <laughs> and they're going to spill the syrup in your back seat. That's what they do. They're supposed to do it. It means you don't have nice furniture. You got some stuff from garage sales and all that. I remember when we moved to our, across the country, and guys were moving us in, and they saw our furniture, and Mary told, we were talking about this the other night, and this one guy started laughing out loud. <laughs> he did. He was a good guy, a young guy. He just started laughing. And he, why'd you bring this halfway across the country? I don't remember, really. It was, and it was kind of funny. <laughs> but you see, you make decisions based on priorities. We felt like our job was to make disciples of our kids. So we tried as best we could to keep me in provision and Mary as the primary caregiver I'm the primary provider, but you get what I'm saying. When we moved into that house and moved halfway across the country, a number of months later, um, after dinner, uh, I went out in the backyard, and I went out with uh, John, and he, he was about seven or eight, and he wanted to shoot baskets. And I'd been teaching him to dribble with his left hand. And every time he'd dribble with his left hand and make a layup, I give him a quarter for every time he dribbled because I was trying to, you know, teach him both hands. So we're working on that. And we're just shooting baskets. And Mary's on the phone in there with her mom. And then uh, Josh came out. And Josh was probably five. And Josh wanted to play. So come on, Josh. So Josh, he grabbed the ball and he ran for a touchdown. Because <laughs> you can do that when you're five. And I come here, Josh. You don't run, but you're going to do this. And he's been working on you. Okay. So we're just hanging out. And then Rachel comes out. Rachel was 10. And she hears, hey, Dad, let me play. And so she, John's going to dribble, and she gets right up in his face. <laughs> I just remember that. It was crazy. We're just hanging out, no big deal, just life. You know, I was pastoring at the church. Things were going so-so. Some of them liked me. A lot of them didn't. Had some issues, you know, it was all right. 
Um, nice house, big backyard, family room needed uh, carpet. Suburban needed a transmission. Wasn't enough coming in, always stuff going out. Every time I turn around, I'm dropping money on that Suburban. Didn't have the money for a new one, my gosh. Anyway, we're just shooting hoops. It was fun, Mary comes out, got off the phone with her mom, and then Mary starts playing. We're all shooting baskets. We're just having fun, hanging out. And then uh, the ball bounced off one of the kids' feet and went under the balcony, under that deck. And so John was crawling in to get the, uh, the basketball, and everything just kind of stopped. And I'm standing there waiting for John to get the ball. And all of a sudden, it was like everything just froze. You know, you can pause the TV. On VCRs, you used to hit freeze frame. I'm looking at it. I'm just, I'm just standing there looking around. And it was like all of a sudden, everything just stopped. Everything was still. It just froze. And I'm looking. And there's John going under the deck and getting dirty and muddy and our dog Sugar licking his face and he's saying no and trying to get the ball. And then I look over here and Mary's standing there and Rachel's hugging her under the basket. And I look over here and Josh is standing there looking straight up into the sky with his mouth hanging open. I don't know what he's doing, I don't know what he's thinking, but that's what he was doing. And I looked at that. We had bills. We had a lot of pressure. We could use some more money. But I looked at that and I thought to myself, it doesn't get any better than this. And then I thought to myself, you know, one day Mary and I are going to be in some retirement joint, sitting out there in two rocking chairs. And we're going to say, hey, do you remember that house on that street? With that big backyard that was so hard to mow. And how much money we had to put into that suburban. And yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah, yeah. And I'll guarantee you we're going to say those were the good old days. These are the good old days right now. But we got to see it through the lens of God's word and through his blueprint. It's the best way to live. And for those who follow his plan, he honors them and he makes a way when it looks like there is no way. The eye of the Lord roams to and fro about the earth looking for those whose hearts are fully his that he may strongly support them. Let's pray. So Father, help us in our own lives where we are to pay attention to your principles We're living in a narcissistic society. It's all about us. But as husbands, as fathers, and as wives, it cannot be all about us. You said if, you, if someone's going to be great in your kingdom, they must become a servant. 
and nobody wants to serve. But you came and served us. The Son of Man came to seek and to save, which was lost. You came, you did what was best for us, not what was best for you. We're to have the same mind in us that was in you. To humble ourselves and sacrifice and serve. Help us to take a gut check. There might be a man in here who needs to sit down with his wife and say, we need to do a little evaluation, honey. Maybe we need to think some of this through. How are we doing? How are we in alignment with the scriptures? Not with what the world says, but what God says. And then, Lord, as we're teachable, we're going to have to walk by faith and you're going to have to make a way for us because sometimes it looks absolutely impossible. But you're the God who does that. So we commit ourselves to you. Give us wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.